The full program for Mumbrella's Comscon conference is now live, with over 25 industry-leading speakers and 14 enlightening sessions locked in. This year's conference is one that you do not want to miss. And this announcement comes just in time with early bird savings ending in less than one week. You can save $100 per ticket for individuals and up to $300 per ticket when making a group booking. Check out the program now and secure your tickets today at www.mumbrella.com.au slash comscon. Hello and welcome back to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm your host, Callum Jaspin. Today, we'll be discussing the looming federal election and how it impacts the media and marketing industry. And later on, we'll have conversations with the general manager of the IMAA, Sam Buchanan, on the Indie Body's progress to date, and also another discussion with Tim Wood on his new book about using storytelling to build brands. On the panel today, reporters Kalila Welch. Hi, Kalila. And Anna McDonald. Hi, hope you're staying dry in Melbourne, Cal, because it is wet in Sydney. I am. We have some beautiful weather down here of light. Uh, makes, it, makes you wonder why anyone would want to live north of here. Let's get straight into it. All we know at this stage is that the federal election can be held no later than the 21st of May, with the only potential dates left being the 7th, 14th and 21st. So, The federal election looks like it will be heading to be called either this or next week. A big talking point for this election cycle is the intense scrutiny that ads will be under regarding misinformation. In August, Nine Told Mumbrella that it had rejected advertisements from uh, Clive Palmer's United Australia Party. Those were being considered to have contravened government-issued health advice on vaccines Obviously, there'll be a lot to focus on this time around. Anna, have we got any sort of update as to how broadcasters and publishers are going to be approaching misinformation in this election cycle? Well, um, I reached out to a few broadcasters and publishers, and of those that got back to me, uh, Nine, Ten, and News Corp all said sort of similar things in terms of uh, when it comes to reporting the news, uh, you know, they abide by their journalistic standards, um, and they apply the same standards to the upcoming election cycle as they would any other news story. Uh, Martin White, who is head of broadcast news at 10 News First, uh, they will be running a regular fact check segment during the election campaign so that 10's viewers can be sure of getting uh, correct information. Um, In terms of political advertising, which you mentioned there, uh, it's a space that has uh, quite a lot of regulation, uh, particularly for broadcasters. Um, so there's there's very strict rules uh, in what can be advertised. Kalila, this is probably even more of an issue for the digital platforms where the regulation is still a bit murky, you know, in regards to the, the broadcasters. Things are pretty set in stone by now. What are the digital giants going to be doing in this space? And is there sort of a sentiment towards their responsibility more generally? Yeah, so I spoke with Chris Cooper from Reset Australia, um, which is the local affiliate of Reset, an initiative counteracting digital threats to democracy, um, earlier this morning. And he basically explained that misinformation and disinformation is, as you would expect, a massive issue generally in Australia um, on our online platforms. 
he pointed to the example of COVID-19 misinformation um, as kind of an indicator of how it's proliferated locally. I do think it's also important here to differentiate between mis and disinformation, the first being unintentional, spin, misreporting, you know, a lack of context, um, and the second being a more insidious type, um, an intentional effort to confuse or lie to the public. You're right in saying that political misinformation online is a lot murkier, um, and that's because it isn't regulated. So there is the Australian Code of Practice on Disinformation and Misinformation, which was developed by the Digital Industry Group, Inc., or Digi, under the supervision of ACMA, which was all based on the ACCC's Digital Platforms Inquiry. Um, But basically, it's a voluntary code, which Cooper noted platforms were able to sign on to, but they could actually specifically opt out of any aspect of the code that didn't suit um, what they were doing. Um, So Cooper explained to me that there is a dominant perspective that this dis and misinformation is a problem of sort of bad actors and bad content or bad information. Um, But he said that while that is true, the line of thought there neglects the point around platform accountability and the role of social media platforms in amplifying misinformation because of their business model, which basically is built on an engagement model. So the algorithms prioritize the sensational and outrageous conspirational and more emotional content over factual reliable information. Um, And they don't discriminate between good and bad information. So um, is there is there any is there any indication that the platforms you know will be I guess taking this quite seriously? Um, uh, y- yes and no. I guess it depends on who you ask. If you ask the platforms like Meta, Google, uh, and even TikTok, they've all got a pretty kind of firm stance that they're doing, you know, their due diligence to um, address the issue. They've all come out with their own variations of election strategies and guides that are combating misinformation on their platforms ahead of the election. Um, But Reset Australia was pretty critical of, you know, the measures that they're taking, um, as are a lot of people, um, as to what effect they'll actually have given that they're not externally regulated. Something to note is that a a big element of each platform's um, regulate, sorry, internal, I guess, self-regulation is that they're educating users to identify misinformation and check the facts themselves, um, which could be seen as disowning the responsibility on their end. Um, another have seen component. that before, have we? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, never. Another component is fact-checking, which um, is important and obviously does have an effect. But um, Cooper explained to me that it kind of was a little bit too little too late in this situation in terms of the fact that by the time um, fact checkers are picking up on information that is incorrect, it's kind of already done the rounds. It's already had that impact. Um, so that's too late. And also the information is moving too quickly during an election um, for it to be effective as well. Um, he did mention as well that in the good news, the AEC has stepped up recently and they've taken on more of a role in fact-checking and regulating misinformation online, particularly on Twitter, um, but their remit only really includes misinformation about electoral processes themselves, so it's not in their scope to discuss um, the actual messaging in political advertising. So, yeah, I guess the, the main takeaway from my conversation with Reset Australia was that the biggest enabler of misinformation online is the lack of proper regulation 
um, which they see is, is super necessary to understand the algorithms um, that are being used by these platforms and what the algorithms are prioritizing. So they're really big advocates of transparency here, um, which are obviously resisted by big tech because it's going to risk their entire business model to be open there. Um, and the second aspect that I found super interesting was this concept of friction, which limits the amplification of certain narratives on platforms, um, which as an example of this was when Facebook during the last US election kind of limited the narrative of the election being rigged um, during actual election campaigns. But once the results came out and the election was won by Biden, they removed this limitation and basically the narrative proliferated and led to the capital attack in January last year. Um, so there's this question of why, if this is something that Facebook is capable of doing or Meta, per se, is capable of doing, why isn't it being introduced more broadly and why isn't it being introduced in the Australian election context? It's uh, it's certainly interesting. And the point you made there about, you know, fact-checking after the event on when things go that far and why, you know, the, the nature of the sensationalist kind of mis and disinformation things that you'll see, it's never going to quite have the same reach when, when, you know, you're following that up with a fact check. And you briefly mentioned the AEC there, Khalil. What will, I guess, their, their specific role be? You know, you mentioned that they're only really handling electoral processes. Yeah, so that's correct. Um, I spoke with the AEC's Director of Media and Digital Engagement, Evan Eakin-Smith, um, earlier. And basically the AEC's perspective is that when it comes to electoral misinformation, everyone has a role to play. While electoral laws don't regulate the truth in political communication, it is the role of communicators to communicate responsibly for platforms and media outlets to apply their policies and for voters themselves to stop and consider. So there is a little bit more of the narrative of, you know, it's everybody's responsibility to make sure that this is, you know, going the right way and that misinformation isn't spreading. But they are running a campaign called Stop and Consider, Um which is, is pushing out that message again, encouraging voters to check the sources of political information they're coming across. Um, and as I did say earlier, they've come become really active on social media to keep voters informed about electoral processes, um, which is actually quite an interesting approach. Um, Egan Smith said that they've applied a deliberately human voice here. Um, and he referred me to a recent interview with The Guardian's Kate Kelly that um, explains the approach a little bit better. So Kelly explained that the increasing popularity of the commission's Twitter page is due to its friendly but firm tone and their willingness to correct the record and educate Twitter users on electoral issues. Um, so Ikan Smith said that this new tone is in a response to increasing distrust in international democracies and electoral processes and they're hoping um, to engage with users more effectively by taking this um, strategy, I guess. They don't want to speak to them like public servants because at the end of the day, they're members of the public. So while at this stage, as we sort of mentioned there, there is no clear set date for the election. Of course, it will be one of those three dates um, in May, though. We'll, of course, have to wait until we sort of hear a bit more about the, the specific policy and manifestos for the parties before they start rolling out their uh, campaigns. But we have seen something like the UAP pretty vigorously campaigning for quite some months now. I know I regularly see their billboards around where I live in Melbourne. I think 
there's a couple of really interesting points here and I I guess we've only really got one election cycle to I guess compare what we're going to see coming up here a really interesting note within all of the sort of um, dialogue about political spending is that since Clive Palmer and his UAP have kind of uh, made it a real focus over the last election cycle and then this one coming in is that it's sort of flipped everything we knew about spending on its head. In the 2019 election, we had a, a massive increase basically of 15.9 million in 2016 to 82 million dollars in political campaign spending. Uh, and that was largely. Is that digital? Um, is that including? That's total, total campaign spending. Um, and this was largely due to Palmer and his United Australia Party really going hard. I guess for a comparison during that 2019 election, the ALP spent $13.3 million and the coalition spent 14.5 compared to Clive's $53.6 million. And this was, you know, about $50 million up, $53 million up on uh, what his party spent in the election previously. If we look at figures from SMI over April and May in the last election cycle, which, you know, fell at the same time in 2019, April was $522 million and May which was very close to the lead-up of the election, was $598 million. It's interesting to also note that within these figures that doesn't include Palmer's party because his figures, um, his sorry, his media spend is not done through agencies. We do have up-to-date political spend figures for the month of March 2022 provided by Nielsen. So the UAP has so far, as of the evening of the 29th, spent $9.67 million on advertising across uh, print, TV and radio. The ALP has spent 540000 the Liberal Party 467000 the Greens 62000 Palmer this time around has promised in January that he's going to run the most expensive election campaign in history. Yeah, I think on that, the fact that they are so far ahead of everyone else in spend, it makes a really interesting point as to what they're saying in their ads. Um, Obviously, as we've discussed online, um, is so much more likely to kind of proliferate misinformation, disinformation. It's not regulated. So they, in their advertising online, they have a bit more scope to to say more things that they might not be allowed to say in traditional media. Um, So it is quite telling that they're doing so much spending um, across online platforms. So, you know, uh, in in January, um, founder and chairman of Atomic 212, Barry O'Brien, wrote that this is really going to kind of be the shot to the arm that um, the Australian economy and some of, you know, uh, some of the business that have been struggling over the, the, the last 24 months due to COVID, it's going to put some meat on their bones. So this election cycle is really coming at a good time. Uh, we have had a pretty strong start to the year as Australia continues to recover from COVID. And um, speaking to Jane Radcliffe from SMI, while the, 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 the February figures will be uh, coming on Friday, she's kind of indicated that things are continuing to be um, pretty strong. 
and that will continue to be helped by the federal election coming up. Brands-wise, I think the impression that I'm getting is there is a little bit of hesitancy. You know, COVID's still lingering. Uh, Ukraine playing some part, floods playing some part, and then I guess political uncertainty. But I think um, all indications will be that we'll continue to see those numbers rising across uh, the next six to eight weeks. Uh, moving on, coming up next, uh, we have former marketing exec and author Tim Wood to talk about brand and storytelling. Tim Wood, former brand marketer at Nike and McDonald's and for the past seven years, director of Fit Brand and Partnerships. Welcome. Thanks, Callum. Good to be here. Great to have you here. So you've just written this book, Your Amazing Brand Story, and in it you kind of focus on brands building their business through uh, storytelling. What What is it about storytelling, um, if you could tell us, that can be so bra- valuable for a brand? Well, I mean, stories about emotions, aren't they? And um, the whole trick of um, brands is to bring emotion to the fore. When you bring, when um, when when emotions come to the fore, people are propelled into into action. Right? Um, look no further than the Oscars the other night, and you're watching Will Smith there with Chris Rock, and you can see the bubbling emotions come out, and he was absolutely propelled into action. So, stories are a tool that when you when you wrap the emotion around the, the functional um, benefits of of your brand, you're much more likely to propel people into action. And you, you've kind of said that Nike have been a big proponent of using stories in their marketing in the past. Can you give us a few examples of this maybe from your time there? Yeah, sure, mate. Um, oh, look, there's, there's so many examples. When I started at Nike in 2005, we had this really huge ambition to become the number one technical running brand for shoes, foot footwear, as in um, runners that, um, footwear that, that runners use. And at the time, Nike was, uh, had 14% market share, one four. ASICs had 44% and somewhere in between was Brooks and New Balance. Was that so- specifically in Australia? That was in Australia, yeah. yeah. And so Nike had never held the number one um, position for footwear sales for for technical running shoes. So this was a, this is a nine year journey, um, and and it had lots of different components to it. And it was at the time when Nike Free um, was coming onto the market, where the the partnership with Apple and Nike um, was was coming to the fore. But one thing we did, and and I'm telling a one chapter of this very long story, is we started. Um, stories come to life when they move beyond the page or they move beyond the bullshit of advertising and actually start to, people can start to experience it for themselves and create their own, um, their own story and they are part of the story. And so we started these um, Nike run clubs where people would get together and, and run wherever and whenever they wanted. And what we did is we said, uh, we put a big cage up and we said, you can run in anything you like, but if you want to chuck your old Asics Nike, sorry, Asics uh, Brooks or New Balance shoes in the big bin, we'll give you a pair of Nikes at, at cost. And so people started doing this and, you know, it created a great pickup and we had these, these bins overflowing. But one thing we realised was that 80% of people that were turning up were women. And we, got, and we started talking and, and understanding and running alongside these women and trying to get a sense of why were all these women turning up? And the really interesting thing they told us was, 
they can't run. Unlike men, they can't run wherever and whenever they want. They're, they're restricted by this fear and they're restricted particularly by the night. And so we took that as a truth and turned it into a story. And that was the birth of this thing called She Runs the Night, where we empowered women to run, um, create clubs for themselves, where we facilitated the meeting all around Australia in major metros running at night between 10pm and midnight. And this turned into a movement and a tribe and a community that create, we created product off the back of it. Um, and then we created a, a massive event in Sydney, two years running, where She Runs the Night came to life and these women actually ran um, in, in the middle of, of the night and uh, re reclaimed the night. And it's one of those things where off the back of that, our sales to women um, skyrocketed and over the next three years was in 20. So we started that in 2005 and it was 2012 when Nike actually took the top spot off ASICs for technical running shoes. Wow. Mm. That's a phenomenal story and I guess a, a perfect example of it and it sounds like it obviously paid off. So I, I guess the, the, the issue would be though that not every brand could obviously use storytelling or something like that in a marketing experience why, why are more not using storytelling and is it always relevant um storytelling always has a part so it's it's a balance between um direct marketing and emotional brand marketing so storytelling is a tool and a tool to connect um with with your consumers i think one of the one of the reasons is that it's actually um th th there's a lack of um, ability within big brands to educate and empower leadership teams on the benefits of storytelling and the benefits of adding emotion to your marketing. So if you use three filters, um, can you connect? Is it believable? And is it remarkable? So when you run those three filters through your brand, is your story connecting with your consumers? When they go into your stores or interact with your products online, is it believable are they bringing that experience to, to to life and then is it remarkable are they making is it creating a story for themselves to rock up to the dinner party that night and go you'd never what happened you never believe what happened to me today that's the power of story when consumers start telling their own story and your your brand is just a part of the story yeah and are there any right now that you think uh, being brands that are kind of particularly doing it very well or maybe some that uh, aren't? Mm. I think the standout standout case study right now is Patagonia. They're, they're the, the, the outdoor brand. Their ability, their, their mission is to build the best product and have a really light um, impact on, on the environment. And they've done that since they started in, in the 70s. But when you look at, um, they, they don't particularly do a lot of advertising. They just do it. When you look at the um, program they've launched called Warnware, where they take a product and, and if you've bought a, a new Patagonia top and it's a bit old and you want to get a new one, you can actually trade it in and they'll buy it off you and give you give you credit points on the Warnware program. And they, uh, so, so someone else can go in and you can buy a new top or you can buy a worn top. And so this whole this whole idea of you know the circular economy and having a less lesser impact and actually decreasing consumer consumption and therefore increasing the benefits to the environment is coming to life. And so people walk around with the, with a story that that they're wearing. They go nice top and say, yeah, ab absolutely, it's a worn wear top. It's been it, it's it's three years old. 
they've washed it and they've patched it up and I'm, and I'm wearing it. I'm, I'm creating my own story in it. So, and Ikea does the same thing. I think I, Ikea's amazing in their ability to not sell flat packed furniture, but actually sell this dream of making your home look better. And you mentioned, so who's doing it well and who's not. You compare, compare Ikea to Harvey Norman. Yeah. And they're slightly different categories, but there's a lot, there's lots of overlap there. Harvey Norman have just had two extraordinary years off the, off the back of COVID. And I would argue that they've also missed a massive opportunity to create an emotional brand connection to that brand. So why are people shopping at Harvey Norman right now? It's, it's value and, and range. So that, that is it. So what happens when someone comes in that you can buy a couch, uh, a same quality couch for a lesser price? Harvey Norman have absolutely um, cashed in on the functional opportunity that they've had and have missed out on the opportunity to create a stronger emotional connection. And, and I'd actually say, I'll give you another example. Harvey Norman is a really obvious one. A less obvious one, Australia Post. So Australia Post is all about connection and they do lots of work getting their brand looking right and the colours looking right and everything else and, and to, to create that, seemingly create that perception of connection but when you go into a store, when you go into a post office, it's this clinical experience. Like there, there, there is absolutely no connection. Most po- post offices are closer to a milk bar or a or a general store. You can buy your tats ticket there, and there's knickknacks, and uh, they they feel dirty. Most of them, and so there's this real lack of. We go back to those three things of connectability, believability, and remarkability. Is there a connection? Yeah, maybe. Well, you know, they've got a statutory um, monopoly on on uh, on on posting letters. Is it believable? Oh, gee, there's no connection when I go into a store. And is it remarkable? No, no. they're just doing they're just doing their job. Yeah, it's it's funny with the Harvey Norman, you know, being one of the biggest advertising spenders in the country. You'd think just put a little bit on that, and it might it might go a long way. Well. Tim, it's been great having you on the podcast. Really appreciate you joining us today and thanks for sharing. Uh, Your book now is out, Your Amazing Brand Story. Thank you, Tim. Great Great to chat, Callum. Cheers. Coming up next, the IMAA's General Manager, Sam Buchanan. Sam Buchanan, General Manager of the Independent Media Agencies of Australia. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Callum. Great to be here. It's great to have you here. So you've launched just over two years ago with 20 founding members. Now you're over 100. How's, how's things tracking so far? Better than we possibly ever could have could have dreamed. Um, the, the first, I guess, you know, first 12 to, 12 to, to 24 months, we've... We've done a number of things. Um, you know, we've, we we joined an alliance with the uh, with the Net- network one, which was the first thing we did, which kind of gave our members a truly global footprint. Um, we brokered some deals. We brokered a, a trade credit insurance deal that saves about seventy five percent of most indies trade credit insurance bill. In one case, I think for a Melbourne agency, it saved close to eighty thousand dollars off their off their bill. And then after that, um, we've gone after other deals and, and brokered some deals with with Roy Morgan and Nielsen to name but a few and just kind of helped level the playing field on on that front to make it more affordable for those guys. 
Um, we've we've raised the profiles of indies and and you know focused heavily on on education. Uh, run a bunch of webinars and and um, and, and and events for networking. Um, and made <laughs> arguably too much noise, but made a bit of noise uh, along the way, and probably you know had my face sprayed out a little bit too much. But um, but it's been an absolute fantastic ride, and 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 we're you know feel like we're kicking some goals for the indies. Yeah, obviously, a lot of things you've mentioned there. I think a, a good place might be to start would be for maybe those listening that aren't quite as aware. What was the uh, initial thinking behind creating another independent body for? these independent agencies in Australia and the kind of the purpose and what you really seek to achieve? Yeah, look, I think when we first started, it was just about getting the the, the voice of indies out there. I think that that there was a period of time where where you know we weren't being heard and and we thought now it was a it was a time to to do something about it there was a function um, uh, hosted by a network uh, probably about two and a half years ago where it was suggested we we should put our heads together and do it and um, five agencies devoted their time to to bring it to life and and six months later we launched with with 20 and um, you know, it's been it, since then. It's been it's been my full time uh, passion to to bring this to life, and we've we've grown to. I think we've just put on our third staff member um, uh, this week, looking after events. So, um, you know, it's been it's been a huge rise, but originally started with just that that uh, we needed to be heard, and then we realised that we had a greater purpose. And at the start of it, I remember that that we. We thought about, oh, we need to make some noise for indies. And then COVID hit and we went, wow, we've got something a little bit more important to do here. I think we can actually help businesses. And we set up buddy systems for, for indies so they can talk to each other and, and networking sessions, which which they all love, which that allows them to communicate. Um, I think that was a really important time that just kind of we were helping the industry and we were putting on webinars about JobKeeper when there was no information about JobKeeper or economic guidance and or legal issues. So we covered all those things off in the first six months when COVID was kicking around, when it was that scary space where no one knew what was happening. So that was the the, uh, the early days and, and then it kind of progressed from there about what else can we do to help and what are the main issues and the bugbears of, of, of Indies and what can we tackle next? You mentioned at the start there something like the the insurance deal which you brokered. Is it things like that that you think are really going to make a big change moving forward in order to get some of these smaller indies challenging with, you know, some of those bigger hold codes which have sort of dominated the market? Yeah, trade credit insurance, full stop. I mean, for those who don't know, trade credit insurance is possibly the three most unsexy words you can say in a sentence together. <laughs> But trade credit insurance, you know, was was an issue that that seemed kind of crazy when we first looked at it. Why does a business pay to make sure another business doesn't fall over, uh, and we could pay our bills? And it was highly inflated for uh, for for indies. It was the biggest bugbear. Um, so it was an opportunity for us to to think about it differently. And and it's still to date, we believe the world's first trade credit insurance group deal for media. 
Uh, and it's, there's probably not a month that goes past where I don't get a call from it around around the world of how did we do it or how did you execute it. So we're we're really excited about you know that component and that kind of leveraged us to think about what else can we do from a from, from a savings point of view. It also allows our our agencies to to have a level of independence if they want it and 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 to you know to do things on their own as well. So um, you know it was it was inevitable that that um, that we were going to come across this issue at some point. So you know, I'm just uh, grateful that we've got some good partners to help deliver it. Yeah, and you mentioned, uh, I think I might have been speaking over you at the, the start. What num- What was the specific number now that you said you're up to? I, b- I believe it's as of this afternoon, it's 125. 125. So you, it'd probably be just about levelling out now, would you think? Yeah, I don't think there's too much room. We're not about scale. We're 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 quite particular about, um, and every one of our members does a reference check to come through. So, you know, it's not about. It's never been about scale for us. It's about uh, quality agencies and about them, yeah. you know, deserving and worthy of having the the badge, uh, which all of them do. And and um, so it's never been about scale. And I don't think it could go, you know, too much more. Maybe to one twenty, one 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 fifty, maybe max in a couple of years, but. Um, you know, we're quite comfortable where we are. And is there a particular reason why potentially, you know, some of those uh, larger independents such as maybe your Hatched or your Atomic or none, is, that they, is it more of a, a case where they maybe don't feel they need that sort of uh, industry support? Look, that's probably a question for those guys. Um, yeah, you know, we're in communications with them, and and but it's a, it's probably a question for those guys of why they're not. Yeah, and and you know you spoke there about um, the I guess maybe potential for 150 maybe capping out. Now that you have got that really really strong industry wide representation, is there some sort of next area of focus? You know, does it then move on to a next phase where there's an overarching framework or plan for the IMAA? We've got some. We, we've definitely changed gears. Like I think that the first probably twelve months was about was about leveling the playing field and and just supporting Australian owned businesses uh, and giving us a voice. Now we've moved to a point where we've where we've got scale. It's it's really important for us to make sure that we leave the industry in a better place than what we found it. So, so we're looking at purpose. So we're looking at well, we've we've launched the Diversity Council, um, which is a fantastic initiative led by uh, Jackie Alley uh, from the Media Store, who who is who is um, leading that stream. And I think we've got about eleven leaders within there from around the country. Um, we had a seminar for um, International Women's Day at the Opera House the other day with JC Deco, which was absolutely fabulous. And Yelena Dockich spoke. Um, so that's those kinds of things. Next, we're moving into reconciliation. Reconciliation is a tough one for a small indie to tackle. We're actually launching a charity out in the Northern Territory uh, within Paja. Um, in May. So we're really excited about tackling that next and then we might move to environmental issues perhaps later on in the year. And another big thing for us is education. We are an industry that learns on the job, learning by sitting next to someone smarter to us. And in the last two years, we haven't had that. So it's a major focus for us is to uh, helping on the education front. We've got an education hub, which we're going to house all our partners 
education portholes in there, as well as launch our own IMAA Academy, which we're heavily uh, investing heavily into that. So we're really excited about bringing that to life. That's going to be rolled out to uh, university leavers, to also our members and obviously our media partners as well, uh, giving everyone that's got kind of a, a, a zero to, to five years experience introduction of what's happening in the media industry. The MFA also uh, launched a recent campaign where the changes focused on, I guess, um, making the industry seem very appealing for people coming into media agencies. Are you doing any work with them? Or I guess, you know, you mentioned there the work you are doing with universities. Oh, look, we're not opposed to, to working with the MFA in any capacity, and we love what they do. They're f- absolutely phenomenal. Um, we will be doing our own next generation um, uh, program with universities later on this year, so we're really excited about that. We will be, wor- yeah, we'll be, we'll be leaning in heavily and working with the universities on that program. But it's important for us now that we've reached the scale to to do good things with, you know, to, not to quote Spider-Man, but but with, with great power <laughs> comes great responsibility. And, and, it's a, and it's important for us to make sure that we do good things for the industry now we're in this um, a position of scale. Yeah, and the, the Diversity Council, that's something that is obviously very important. You would, you would hope at this day and age you, you wouldn't be needing that, but obviously we still do. There's still a lot of progress to be done in that area. Was that something which you kind of initiated or was it something that you were in speaking to the members they had kind of uh, come up with and said, this is something that we do need to tackle because we still do have these ongoing inequalities and stigmas in our workplaces? Look, we, we, we um, do a salary survey. Um, not that we saw anything dangerous or upsetting in there uh, that was that was in any way ab- above what we see in the other industries, but but we just knew that that you know if we were going to do things, diversity and inclusion, you know, is a hugely important uh, issue and it's a big issue, um, and, and these kinds of issues are, are, are harder to tackle. Uh, as a smaller business and, and where to start. And, and and so we knew it was an opportunity for us to help and assist and educate. Um, so that's the start of that, that, that process. Yeah, and obviously one of the, the aims, as you mentioned, were kind of increasing this collaboration and sort of lifting each other up throughout the industry from these indies. Can you, can you give me a few examples of maybe how that's playing out or have you have you seen that? kind of coming to fruition so far? Um, so we've seen a, a tremendous amount of appetite for indies to work together or even creating the super indie. Um, you know, we have networking sessions most months when we're not in lockdown and and you can see that, that it's supposed to finish at 7.30 and, and at 1.30 in the morning you're telling everyone to go home to their family. So you know there's an appetite for, for collaboration um, and, and, you know, for larger accounts, uh, I, I see a time definitely where that, that, you know, there might be two or three agencies who bind together to, um, uh, to deliver upon it. I love that idea of the super indie. Hopefully we'll be, uh, we'll be seeing that soon. Um, you, you, I guess a good segue on that, uh, you mentioned for some of those larger accounts, this was a story that we at Mumbrella have been following along with some other publications um, in recent months. Uh, the New South Wales government tender uh, f- worth potentially up to about $78 million, so obviously one of the, the bigger ones in the country, went out with an expression of interest seeking a single 
agency supplier or a panel of agencies from one holding group, which essentially in the process does uh, rule out any Australian-owned indie agencies. The last update, I think, was that you were seeking a meeting with Victor Dominello. What, what point is that process at now? And it's, I guess what, how, how hopeful is it looking that we might see um, a turn back on that, allowing indies to kind of put their foot forward? Look, it, it, it's something that is is we're deeply passionate about and feel very, very strongly that that um, the process, and we're not saying, you know, give us all the, the business. We're just saying allow us to compete with the rest of the guys. That's all. And I think that, you know, everyone can agree on that. Um, where it's at, we've we've got a line of communications with uh, with Victor and his department. Um, uh, we're talking to um, uh, to all parties on there, and we've got ongoing correspondence. So hopefully, I'll be in a position to talk more about that within the next three to four weeks. We are seeing a little bit of this at the moment, more generally. I guess you know, last I think it was last week or the week before, uh, Coles came out asking just three multinationals to pitch for a bespoke agency model, um, obviously then not not engaging any of these these local indies that we're obviously talking about. Um, brands obviously entitled to engage whoever they like when it's a bit more private, but do you think this might be a, maybe a worrying trend if things are increasingly going that direction? Oh, 100%. But I think that my gut feel is that things are starting to move in in Indies way. Indies are having a bit of a, you know, the golden period of Indies. It's it's the era of Indies. Um, look, there'll always be um, uh, the coals of these ginormous businesses that, that, that will only want to, you know, invite a handful of multinational companies. I mean, we firmly believe that, that you know, Australian business should support Australian business. And and it's a it's it's you know if not just allow us to pitch. I mean, there's a lot that indies can offer in terms of diversity of thought, in terms of you know what they bring to the table with a level of passion and commitment. Um, and I believe that you know the that, that we're getting closer and closer. Um, you know, between the holding companies. At the end of 2021, uh, the IMAA in your survey came out and reported. I think it was 60% of agencies and indies grew across the year. You now have your event next week, Operation Bounce Back. Um, very snazzy name. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about that and what, what what's kind of on the cards there? It's the most, Callum, thank you. It's the most uh, advantageous uh, media event in, in the history of media. <laughs> now, it's, it's going to be a great event. It's going to be at the entertainment quarter. It's going to be streamed around, uh, around Australia. And uh, what it is, it's basically a very, very short and sharp session of um, having the industry bodies, uh, IAB, CRA, OMA, talking to the industry and going, as an indie, this is what you guys need to know going into 2022 and beyond. So we've got uh, two and a half hours to kind of run through each sector or each channel, um, if you will, and, and kind of update them on what the key issues that they need to know, uh, followed by a networking session afterwards. And I guess one of those um, key issues for this year or maybe a talking point that we've been uh, going across is that one of talent. You know, we've got the borders reopening now, um, which is very exciting. You know, we'll have hopefully an influx of some really high-level talent. 
the last couple of years, as as you said, you know, they've been really strong for indies, and maybe that is for a, a multitude of reasons. But one of those being culture, kind of drawing in some really good local talent. How do you think the indies will be able to, I guess, attract local talent? Sorry, attract international talent, um, and for talent to still be a big driver across this year. Yeah. So there's a couple of points there as well. I think that that you know at the start of the pandemic, everyone kind of went, oh, the you know the 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 poms have gone home. You know, there's a hole in the market. And I speak to my counterparts around the world, and if they've gone home, they've not gone back to the media industry. So I think there's a whole bunch of people that you know possibly have disillusioned with media a little bit, possibly. Um, so I think that you know attracting them back to uh, to Indies in the same way that we attract them normally, which is which is culture, which is which is you know a bit more uh, flexibility uh, that we can offer, uh, a bit more you know an autonomy as well uh, within their roles. I think will will we'll be key to that. I believe once the the borders are, are fully open, uh, we should have um, uh, a good stream of talent coming through from from overseas. And is there any other, I guess, key trends that you're, you're kind of um, you've pinpointed for this year that might be ones to look out for? I think is you know automation is whatever we do is gonna is gonna be key for the next for the next five years and probably if we're not you know billing or or or, or buying advertising uh, through automation through all channels traditional or digital um, you know agencies will be left behind. I think, and the big the big thing that I'm seeing is is the merging of, of of lanes. So you've got your traditional agency, which is you know your traditional media agency that might you know ten years ago put on a, a digital department, and then you've got your pure play digital agencies, which started out as SEM and SEO, and then started doing display. Now these digital agencies, because of you know the likes of of you know digital at home or, or, or podcasting or, or digital radio or, or BVOD CTV, they're now being exposed to budgets that are that are, um, are traditional budgets, and they're being okay. Well, look, if I'm getting a little bit of the BVOD, well, why can't I get all of the traditional? So where they never would have thought crossing lanes into into um, um, uh, traditional media lanes, they're now you know calling us up and going, what's a tarp, and how do I buy it? So, <laughs> So there's there's a real kind of uh, merging of lanes that we're starting to see, and I think that over the next couple of years we'll see more and more of it. Where where you look at the you know the media vendors, and they'll they'll have they'll be having you know a list of clients that are you know significantly longer than what they were a few years ago. So you know we're on the eve of an election. Um, this is something we'll be talking about earlier in the podcast uh, and, you know, it could be called at any day now. How, how is the, is there any kind of indication of how the market's feeling about this? Speaking to a few people, it seems like there's a little bit of hesitancy at the moment just to wait and see how things play out. Oh, there's, there's, there's always hesitancy. I think that, that um, consumer confidence is going to be, you know, the biggest driver for the, for the market. Um, you know, what the government does if it kind of pushes and tries to balance, um, you know, inflation rises um, uh, with consumer confidence is, is going to be the challenge for them. I think that, but, but you know, as we have through other elections, the world will return to normal and, and, and life will go on. Um, I, I think this year, from a, from a spend point of view, we're going to be in a good spot until those interest rates start going up. And, um, and, and then that might kind of, you know, put the brakes on little things, but not until it gets probably 2 or 
And just finally, Sam, we've got a very exciting evening ahead of us watching the federal budget. Uh, anything you'll you'll be looking forward to or looking out for we're coming out of that? Aside from the whole thing, <laughs> um, I will look. I, look, I always look for what they're doing with, uh, and I'll be watching what they're, what's happening on labour laws um, uh, and talent, uh, support of the sector, and obviously support of Australian-owned businesses, which which is at the core. Um, you know what the IMWA does. So, so you know we we will be very very watching very closely to see what uh, what, what their next moves are. But I think they're all, you know, from what I'm hearing, um, um, they're very very keen to support the local market. Well, Sam, it's been really great having you on, and we're really looking forward to seeing what happens next at the IMWA. Callum, thank you, mate, and, and thank you for listening. And that's it for another week on the Mumbrella Cast. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite platform. Give us a rating if there is an option for that. And also check out our website for more content and updates. Kalila and Anna, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll see you next week. Bye.